Welcome to the weekly with your host, Jude and Ed. Today is our first podcast and we're going to talk about wealth accumulation and its role in the racial division in the states and throughout the world really and what we could do or some solutions we could think of that might bridge that gap to help level out the playing field. We're going to have a conversation both me and Ed and we're going to go through this in great detail so stick in and let's get going. So we're here talking about racism and, you know, what I see as surface racism is, uh, you know, like what we see on Instagram, social media, where we see the police bruta- brutality, the slurring, the, 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 the name calling and whatnot. How about you, Ed? Uh, with racism, uh, no, definitely there's more, more to it than just um, what we see on Instagram. Uh, I think personally there's a lot of uh, deep history rooted in racism. Uh, we talked a little bit about wealth accumulation and its role, uh, like specifically how you have uh, white um, uh, owners, slave owners that ended up profiting off of slavery and then through years of um uh compounding like their wealth right giving it to their children and and passing on generational wealth you end up Mm. seeing uh certain uh groups end up kind of getting ahead and having a, a leg up on others and it just hap it just continues to snowball generation mm-hmm. after generation. Yeah, no, I agree with that because you know it's 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 that wealth accumulation that happened and compounded over generation and generation that helps people pay for their education, helps them pay for a health crisis or anything like that and keeps them above water. Whereas, you know, uh, for blacks or minority, they don't have that same sort of financial support that they can fall back on. Yeah, that's exactly it. Getting educated, uh, going to an Ivy League school, that's something that you need a lot of wealth. You're not going to be a middle class, low class earner and get into a Harvard, Yale, MIT. So you have also certain companies that they'll recruit from specific schools uh, looking at the Ivy Leagues. And if you're not in that pool, uh, of, of people that make it, whether it's multiple reasons, like through income, uh, through just like access to that education, through the knowledge of knowing to go to Ivy League schools, you're not going to get these jobs. And like we talked about, that just snowballs into uh, generations that, you know, maybe their parents have to work part time or three jobs, minimum wage, and they can never get out of this cycle of poverty. Yeah, no, 100%. And I also think it goes back to like the financial institutions before when policies were basically limiting black people, like a family that's making a black family making over $150,000 wouldn't be able to buy a house, but a white family making, you know, $30,000 in combined income is able to buy a house. And the main form of wealth accumulation throughout history 
at least in the states was you know buying a home right buying a primary residence and building wealth paying that down and then you know your grandparents you inherit it your parents inherit it and then you have some money for second post secondary education or what not right no i agree uh, and then like specifically you look at uh back uh like 20 30 years ago you had uh the american dream being sold to the people specifically you have your your white picket fence you live in the suburbs you drive this expensive suv gas guzzler uh and certain suburbs they didn't want black people in their community because they would think that there would be crime violence uh you know just kind of like problems associated with uh that like race so you would actually have black people being denied uh housing in certain suburbs and they could afford it but they just weren't allowed to 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 buy and then through let's say 20 30 years of growth these affordable homes in the suburbs are now considered a luxury where only predominantly white people were allowed to access that type of home and you mm-hmm. kind of think of black people as uh living in the inner cities poor poverty uh like we talked about minimum wage drugs lack of education uh there's just like a lot of problems that get associated with inner city Mhm. And and that's what I mean by, you know, like solving the problem of helping with wealth accumulation. Like I know that getting the getting a post secondary education is not the the only route to accumulating wealth or becoming getting a great career or what not. Like you can become an entrepreneur, you can do all these other things, but you know, the vast majority of people that are salaried workers in great great jobs are post secondary uh educated uh individuals and you know i think by you know if the government had a program like you know in canada our our school is not as expensive because post secondary education is subsidized to an extent even though it is expensive it's still not nowhere as much as the states and then we also have other social nets like universal healthcare where you know if you're you you you're a person who doesn't have as much access to money if you run into any health issues you're not going to be worried about breaking the bank right so yeah no i definitely uh definitely agree with you so how do we get to the root of this problem so we've had generations of inequality grow we see a widening income uh gap uh between the rich and the poor uh recessions make things even worse uh, i feel like recessions they end up destroying the middle class either pushing you up to an elite if you're the winner of a downturn or they move you back uh down a class uh, if you if you've been negatively affected so mm. how do we get to the root of the problem is it do we just tax white people and say you know what 
every white person should pay a $50,000 fine and we give it to a black person. Is that fair taxing, let's say, uh, a white person who maybe makes fifteen, twenty thousand a year, lives in a trailer park, to give it to a black doctor that makes two hundred thousand a year? Like, what is the solution here? I no, I think like, like what I mentioned before. I think the best solution is giving them access to be able to get better education, to be able to make sure they're a, a part of uh, the problem. I think is like. You know they don't have enough money to just support themselves throughout that growth period, right? Like they, I don't, I don't think you, you, you're going to have to tax a bit more to provide the services, but you know, provide uh, universal healthcare, provide subsidized post-secondary education, provide, um, um, you know, social assistance, and you know, I think even when we look at police brutality, I think we should take. Policing should be a, a a college degree or a community college diploma or whatever, where you know you spend one to three years getting an education on, you know, not just policing but ethics and uh, you know community service and you know social work and all those other things, and maybe having like a co-op where some the the cops go through the communities and work with the youth of the communities, so they know where these kids are coming from right like end of the day you if you don't if you can't connect with them uh, and see similarities or common common things between each other you won't feel empathy for that person so when you see the worst of that person you won't see where they came from what happened to them you'll just see that one moment in time yeah, so I think you brought up a couple of good points. So, uh, interesting case. Let's go to let's go back to your first point: universal healthcare, social uh, assistance, access to education. We see that in Canada, and uh, there's racism still in Canada. So, uh, how effective do you think it is offering these three, um, like making these three a priority? but we still have the same problems in Canada. No, I think you're right. Like we do have racism in Canada and I think there's racism throughout the whole world, but I think there's a more of an even playing field in Canada than there is in the States. Like if you take me, for example, as as a case study, like my mom was in and out of hospitals when I was younger. Um, so, you know, we would have definitely had, and she was just a factory worker. She didn't have benefits or anything. So we definitely would have had uh, had issues in terms of uh, paying medical bills or whatever. Then you, on top of that, um, you know, post-secondary education, I definitely wouldn't have been able to uh, afford uh, the amount that the, the states are charging, right? Coming from... Uh, just with my mom trying to support me or whatnot. And I did work through school and everything, but, you know, it's just added stress on someone to perform well while working. It's a lot harder to do good in school while you're working. And if you just barely graduated from university, you're probably not going to land the top jobs coming out of university, right? I just feel like it doesn't put away from 
uh, racism doesn't go away from it, from these little support systems, but it, these support systems at least put you in a position where you get to interact more with the race and the, 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 the majority that's going through the schools that are going and getting these jobs and sitting around the tables and making the decisions, right? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I think one of the key points is that when we talk about access to education, we need to be giving uh, relevant jobs, 2020 job training. So something like an app developer uh, or something that's like focused on technology or healthcare, things that we know 50 years from now, 20 years from now, they're going to be around uh, rather than, you know, teaching them a subsidy in this might be a bad example, but how to repair a car, for example, as a mechanic. Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. that job is going to be 10, 20 years from now and how much money you can earn if we're subsidizing that type of education, mm-hmm. the technology side, uh, just an example. And then I just want to circle back to something about police education. So you talked about how to connect with the community. Uh, I think like one major uh, aspect in in policing and hiring you you got to be hiring people that grew up in the community so i think like sometimes in the the projects you have uh the the f the police um mantra and people are like very resistant to cooperating with authorities and i feel like we need to go into those communities and and hire because they are the ones that understand their community more. So they'll be able to show genuine empathy and really understand where they're coming from uh, in terms of like mentality, culture, lifestyle, how to even connect with them and potentially like prevent future issues. Uh, And then another thing too is putting those same, uh, uh, you know, finding high-risk communities, hiring police officers from there, but not only just giving them the entry-level groundwork, but also putting them in positions positions of power so uh you know putting them as like chief of police or like head of departments so that they can implement real change um mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if um if if we have that i feel like you, we're getting better at uh adding um different demographics and uh you know kind of like different types of people uh, in positions of power, but it still is predominantly a older white male uh, figure that are in these positions of power. So I think uh, focusing kind of on that uh, would help. And I agree with you as well as you need to educate them, not this eight month or eight week training program, something that two, three years uh, they really kind of understand policing at uh, so many different degrees. And then not only that, you have an individual that was willing to dedicate two to three years of education, four years of education. So mm. you're kind of filtering out, you know, people that uh, may be in it for a paycheck or, you know, just maybe not in it for the right reasons because of how much dedication you have to put in to achieve that uh, a goal. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, policing it should be like proportional to like the 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 diversity of that certain population that they're uh, they're policing right i feel like you know try to be um i know it's hard to do but try to get 
direct representation of the population that you're you're policing right so you know obviously you can't have like it's not going to have like every every police chief might not be black or whatever because you know it's a predominantly white um population and it would just be disproportional if you just had all you know black uh police chiefs and i i i think you know it it's it, you had amazing points there is like you know get people from the community like they are the representation directly representing their community they know what's going on they they know you know what kind of situation these people are in and people might even recognize them right like oh this guy grew up from my my block or whatever so you know i trust him i know he's not going to like throw me under the bus or whatever right and you know you're right like all these things aren't going to be a quick fix for racism i think like these are starting points of racism trying to fix racism from the bottom through prov uh poverty and like trying to figure out like how we can help throughout different ways and as we keep learning is just keep adapting and keep changing and you know you get more black people into policing get more uh uh people that are actually being caught for or being charged on uh criminal activities see what the portion is like if you know there's not many white people getting charged or being policed or what not and it's mostly black and hispanics or indians or whatever you just make you just have a police force that kind of mirrors that that same uh policing right so Absolutely. I I yeah, I I totally agree with you. Switching gears. COVID-19. Where do we see it going? What relief programs are in place? Uh we're kind of we're in September now, so we are what? 6 months into the pandemic. Yeah, I think it started in March, right? Like March 14th or something like that. Right. So, do we see a second wave? Is that going to uh affect uh people? Is that going to affect the economy? Is that going to affect the stock markets? Talk to me. My opinion is I think there will be a second wave and I don't think it's because it's like the Spanish flu it got colder and uh and that's why we're getting the second wave. There's been research early on showing that there wasn't much material uh difference between warmer climates and colder climates for covid transmission but you know i think the reason why we're going to get our second wave is we're seeing an uptick right now and then we're also going to see a massive uptick in um when schools open up and you know they're opening up and looks like people are going back to school and looks like children are going to be in classes it's optional and i think they made it optional so you know that's like a get out of jail free for the government just in case if something happens they can be like hey you know there were risk involved in sending your children here for school but you know like it, that's why we made it optional so you know we had a lot of parents saying that it's hard to work and watch their kids as you know for homeschooling and whatnot so i definitely think there's going to be a second wave i do there's think that there's going to be an impact um mostly to service industries and what not because you know you're not going to see the same foot traffic um 
But, you know, I think um, because of the first wave, a lot of businesses adapted in the way that they operate anyways. They started doing the, the social distancing where they can and it could it's mandated in the businesses, whereas it's harder in schools because of the density of classes. But basically, I think businesses are set up to kind of operate. They might see a reduction in business, but not to an extent where it's going to throw them out of the water. And we see that governments and banks and financial institutions are willing to step in and provide uh, financial support or deferrals or whatever it may be to help them go through the times because we just can't afford everyone defaulting and going through uh, a massive uh, recession, depression kind of type thing. What, what's your take on it? Yeah, so I um, I agree with you. Uh, I do think that there is going to be a, a second wave. Um, you're absolutely right. They were talking about how uh, in March, that's when we were kind of going through our spring season, uh, you would still have India, Brazil, uh, kind of like the, the countries in the Southern Hemisphere <coughs> um, end up having uh, an outbreak of um, COVID-19. So I... Uh, no, I agree with you there. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the first wave, mainly because I think there is uh, better PPE in place, social distancing, um, masks, right? Like, like I just think that uh, the businesses are much more cautious. Uh, and I also think that uh, specifically in that service industry, I don't think people go to restaurants and eat indoors as much, uh, let alone when they offered it outdoors i think there was more people willing to eat outdoors but now that we're coming into the colder seasons uh you're gonna see that uh people are not comfortable eating inside as compared to before not saying nobody's mm-hmm. doing it but i do think that it's uh though that industry is going to get affected uh tourism mm-hmm. is an interesting one too because you need to 14 day quarantine if you leave borders in canada mm-hmm. so if you're going on a one-week vacation, that's a three-week vacation now with your two-week quarantine. Uh, mm-hmm. I was reading how Air Canada wanted to uh, kind of do a test pilot where they'll test you for COVID uh, if uh, when you land, and then another one on day seven. Uh, if you have two negative results, you can go out into the public and wear, as long as you're wearing a mask. Uh, but again, that still is a seven-day quarantine. So mm-hmm. I think tourism hotels, uh, you know, hospitality, restaurants. I think that uh, they're going to get hit hard. I disagree with you in terms of saying that businesses are going to close. I read something that 50% of small businesses will close in the next three months uh, if they don't uh, uh, kind of like receive more support, uh, whether it's through the government, whether it's consumers flocking back into their uh, business. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think that small businesses are in big, big trouble. I think businesses, large corporations that were on the cusp, not lots of cash, lots of debt obligations, uh, they're going to be hit hard as well. Mm. Uh, and I just think we're coming into a, uh, a new era of the world. Uh, mm. And I don't think government subsidies is something that we can continue. Uh, we've already 
there's already so much uh, subsidy for pr uh, the personal workers when CERB came in. The small businesses, they were offering uh, these like $40,000 loans. 10,000 would be forgiven as long as you pay back the 30 by 2022, I believe. Um, so I, like, what more are we doing? Are we just gonna continue throwing bad money at these small businesses that can never recoup and repay? And that money, it, the government's, it's gotta come from somewhere, which is gonna be in the form of higher taxes. Uh, mm. But how else do you recoup this money? Yeah, no, no. I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, the one thing I might disagree with is like, I think that governments will still step in even if there is a second wave. I think, you know, if 50% of businesses fail, that's a big, big, big problem because that's a ripple effect. 50% of business failed and that means those 50% of businesses, all their employees, they all stop spending money. Then it ripples effects to the rest of the 50%. Then how many people are really left over, right? So the government will step in. And, you know, recently, they the thought of economists um, recently, and they had a, you know, the annual economist meeting back in 2019, I believe. And they were like, you know, we're okay with a bit, uh, governments borrowing uh, to fund deficits or whatever and their thought process was like as long as the economy is growing over the interest rate of uh, of the borrowing and interest rates are at an all-time low we're not growing the economy but you know you see a shift in the way that people think about debt right it's not the same way our our parents generation or their parents generation think about debt. like even if you think about our previous conversation with your dad or whatever like you know they to borrow from a home to invest in another home or something like that was not really things that my parents did and it's something i would definitely do so i think the thought of like deficits and debt is different i think you know as long as we can get through this it's fine a lot of the government subsidies and a lot of people are complaining was for businesses was more like in loan forms but but end of the day i think you know if the government doesn't step in and help bail out um, these corporations and small businesses and whatnot, we'll, we'll run into a bigger problem. And hope. And here's the thing, like it, there may be a second wave. We don't know how long it'll go for. There may be a third wave, fourth wave. We, we just don't know what we're going to see. It looks like the programs are still available if they need it because it's we it's better to see if you can work with someone versus uh defaulting on the debt right so yeah yeah no no definitely you uh you, you definitely want to keep as many businesses as alive as possible i do agree with that that ripple effect um you 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 kind of have that that dollar that the business earns you give it to the employee it's tax that employee takes their after-tax dollars to spend it on something that charges HST tax again. You may mm -hmm. even buy gas, which has additional tax. So there's just that that ripple effect that you were talking about, which uh, I I do agree. Um, so I guess I guess the solution here is the vaccine. We need a vaccine. Yeah, that, that's really going to be where uh, our the true like 
wake of this uh, would we call it a recession because you know what it's fair to call it a recession now mm-hmm. fair word you know I think yeah I think so I, and I think going back to what you said is like how long can we support this for because like I said I think a second wave I think the government will go be okay with it but how how long could we support this and you're right it's until we can get a vaccine out there all right beautiful well jude it was a pleasure having this conversation with you uh i learned a lot i'm so happy we discussed uh wealth accumulation uh ways that uh it played its role in race uh talked about covid 19 where do we see it going what relief programs are in place uh so jude thank you so much for taking the time and thank you so much for listening everybody it's been a blast hope you enjoy your week yeah for sure thanks for joining us on our first call and uh, our first podcast sorry i need to get used to that and uh um yeah have a nice week take care bye bye